Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, Ned. Hello. How was your? How was the rest of the Zwift ride that I bailed out of, David, halfway through yesterday? That was brilliant. Your exit is unheard of in Zwift groups. Just to, <laughs> it was it was awesome. You were kind of holding the whole show together and doing a great job uh, because we were doing the the live Discord podcast like chat uh, while we were riding through the streets of London you're giving wonderful stories about Buckingham Palace and we're settling into a nice rhythm and then all of a sudden you're like oh my father's here my father-in-law's here I, I, I gotta go I'll see you later bye and, <laughs> and then what was brilliant was then it started this trend and all the messaging I am Ned and it yeah. was kind of like Spartacus everyone wanted to get off but couldn't and you were just like I'm getting off so have, is that a terrible breach of etiquette? Is that something that you don't do? Do you always complete the ride? Is that? Well, I, I, I think I think as a ride leader, normally you complete the ride. It. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> normally much... lead, leads by example, and I think I... that's what that's what the trend was. I everyone was like, "That's amazing! You, that's true. You can just do that if you want. <laughs> we don't have to do. It's not as if you you're twenty k's from home. It's like I can just get off and go and have dinner now." The old, the old finger comes out and you just press the button on the screen that says end ride. I'm out. Well, the thing is, I need to explain that, um, we've got this bike shed at the back of the house that we had built a couple of years ago. And, um, I had the, so I've got the Zwift set up in this kind of dusty bike shed, which has got all the gardening bits and pieces in it as well. It's a bit messy. And, but I had the door open and three meters away from that, no, two meters away from that is the back of the house and the kitchen. And my father-in-law had come in and I could see that this amazing Ethiopian takeaway, which is absolutely fantastic, had been delivered. And um, I just, I had a moment of existential awakening in which I thought, what am I, why am I, why am I even doing this? You know, with a headset on talking about, um, talking, well, actually you were talking about, uh, uh, very interestingly, about the 2012 ascent of Box Hill in the Olympic road race, live to everyone on the ride, which was pretty amazing actually to be fair um, and i just thought no I'd, I'd prefer to be i'd prefer to be eating the um spiced spiced lentils it's like and my picnic envy at the tour de france but at tour de france <laughs> you can't get off and join in the picnic except when you're in swift and your garden shed and you see that picnic arrive in your kitchen you can just get off yeah <laughs> no to be uh, fair also uh, another factor david was that i wasn't totally well briefed by you in the sense that you know you were my, very much my ds experienced hand and on the team briefing on the team bus before the ride got underway you said you know you got the roadbook out you very much flagged up the the moments of um you know where you've got to pay attention and be in the right position the kind of key points in the race on the route but you did say the race finishes atop box hill um that the salient detail which i think is ah. of great importance that you omitted to say is that it finishes the second time you go up box yeah. hill <laughs> I'm not sure if I was fully aware of that either. I think because... it came. I think it came and bit you on the ass as well. That one, didn't it? <laughs> well, I'm still learning all this because it's, it's it, the days of Swift where it was quite simple and a few choices. There's just well, not infinite, but a lot of choices. So I just chose a lap and it said Box Hill finish. I was like, that looks great. I was like, it seems a long way to get to Box Hill. I didn't realize it was two laps <laughs> to get there. <laughs> anyway, but yeah. it was uh, it was good. I, I'm impressed. I, I I mean, I'm blowing our own trumpet. I'm quite amazed we managed to pull off the old Discord thing. Oh no! Do. And and I mean, you, I I was nothing to do with it. Save you just told me what to do and how to log on and how to do it. I was seriously impressed with your IT skills, actually. Thanks, Matt. because by all accounts, people could actually hear us chat to one another. Yeah. And yeah. were able to listen while they were, which is a pretty cool function, really, isn't it? It's a really cool function. I think in the future, because we're just, we were, our hands were full and it was quite lovely. In the future, we can invite like a radio show people to come on stage and talk as well. I have a question and kind of, you know, I mean, we'd have to vet them quite heavily. Um, but. <laughs> <laughs> well, what you said, so we'd invite on guests 
who we didn't quite trust. Well, just don't know in the slightest. It could oh, be anybody. It could be, could be a random. Paul Kimmage. Yeah. Uh, well, that would, be, that would be quite something, wouldn't it? Paul Kimmage under a pseudonym, just trying to get on stage. That well, that was, the other, that was the other thing about pseudonyms, wasn't it? Because I, I ride on Zwift. I'm not going to say it here. We've been over this territory on the podcast, but I do have a pseudonym on Zwift. Mm. I'm not just, I'm not, me, I'm not myself. But in order for people on this it, ride... And your pseudonym isn't uh, nobody either. It's not as if you've chosen a pseudonym that's incognito and, and humble. No, although... <laughs> although you've informed me that I'm not the only blank blank no. On on Zwift, there are ten of us, or something like I think that. About that. Approximately ten of you. About yeah. ten of us. Anyway, yeah. but I thought for the purposes of the ride, since it was kind of you know, I suppose it was important for people to be able to know you know how far back in the bunch I was slipping and all this sort of thing. Um, I, I I felt duty bound to say I'm this guy, by the way, if you're looking for where I am. And then of course that prompted a lot of people to claim that they were me as well. So there uh, were. That's where the Iron. I think started. I think I think that's where the Iron Ned started. So I think. Straight oh, off the back of that. changed it now. Okay. I, think, I think about 20 people just claimed to be me as well. And of course, that was impossible for me to disprove at that point. <laughs> so I couldn't, there was nothing I could do it's... to prove my identity. Well, you could have done because you could have changed how you're riding. You could have just slammed the brakes on. But, um, <laughs> but then anyone, any of the other Neds could have done that as well. Exactly. If you were announcing what you're about to do. Exactly. Then all the other Neds could have just done the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah it's, yeah, it's, a, in, it's so, but, so I went no. I went into the Zwift ride not expecting to have a kind of existential uh, conundrum to deal with when I came out the other end but that's it <laughs> who am I really a, who a am integration I? into the real world who am I who am I yeah but it's good and so I will I will stay the course next week I promise David so um, here's ne- something about next week because I'm in London okay um, uh, I'm actually going to London tomorrow then going to visit my sister for a few days okay and but I'm back down and I'm actually going to try and do the Zwift ride from the Zwift uh, HQ in London. Okay. Um, if you wanted to join me there. Oh, well, that would be something, wouldn't it? Yeah, because well, then they said they'll, they'll film us and do all stuff around it. And so yeah. I was like, why not? That seems like a good freebie. You can talk just, about Roadbook. I can talk about Chapter 3. Uh, yeah. Let me just, ch- just check my diary. Yeah, absolutely. Tuesday the 23rd, Tuesday right? evening, so 7pm, and we'll, we'll meet there at the Swift offices in London, and they'll set it all up for us, and then we can do it from there, then the guys here in Drone will be at the studio, and we can do it with some people helping us this time, Ned. Make a change from the old garden shed. Yeah. 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 Okay, cool. There you go. And then, okay. and then, I, def- then I definitely have to finish, don't I, if I'm actually at Zwift. Oh, no, no, there's, there's no excuse. There's no Ethiopian... <laughs> kind of take, take arriving no but uh but so yeah so we'll put the the link to that ride in the show notes and people can just sign up and okay um, but yeah we'll okay. figure all that out later what's the what's the probably. what's the parkour next week i haven't chosen it yet so we can discuss that if you like you can choose i i like the one i like the one in um kind of Brittany. you know uh, the, the plouet yeah the, exactly plouet the plouet one yeah i call yeah. that one apparently there's a, like a night Japanese thing starting next week. That'd be quite mm. cool as well. Wait, let's grow up. Let's grow. Let's, we'll step up baby steps. We can talk about Plue. We can't talk about Japan at night. Yeah, we can talk a lot about Plue, I think. Yeah. Um, but uh, can I just, because not very many people would have heard my fantastic Buckingham Palace. Ah, fact. It's a great story. Yeah. So yeah. I, I asked you, actually, I don't know if I've ever told you the answer. The question I posed to you was, David, since 1914, and the reason, by the way, that I was offering up a Buckingham Palace fact was that I thought we were going to go past Buckingham, Pal- Buckingham Palace on the London circuit. Turns out we didn't, actually. But we got it quite stop. close. We got very close. We were in the yeah. Trafalgar Square, uh, Parliament Square. Um, but it didn't stop me reeling out the fact. And I said to you, since 1914, David, how many people have broken into the grounds of Buckingham Palace? And I didn't let you have a guess at that. And I didn't tell you the answer. I said seven. Well, it's close. Twelve people. Including, oh, I think, people. most famously in 1982, um, Michael Fagan uh, broke in and, and was rumoured to, I think he got right into the Queen's bedroom, didn't he? And then there was a story doing the rounds that they, he sat on the end of her bed and they had a little chin wag and a chat for 20 minutes. I don't think that's really what happened. Um, but Fagan was by no means the first. Um, the first person to break into the grounds of Buckingham Palace was in 1838 when Queen Victoria, I think had only just moved into Buckingham Palace, um, a young boy, he was 14 years of age, called Thomas Jones. 
uh, broke into Buckingham Palace, disguised as a chimney sweep, and was apprehended in a corridor in Buckingham Palace, running down a corridor, being chased. And when they got hold of him, he was found he was found to have stuffed uh, Queen Victoria's underwear down his trousers. <laughs> <It's escaping. laughs> anyway, he was punished in some horrible Victorian way, I would imagine, but didn't stop him coming back a year later. He uh, was apprehended again for a second time. And then again in 1841, for a third time, he was apprehended having broken into the grounds of Buckingham Palace. This time he went away for a stretch in prison. Um, when he was released, the day he was released from his stretch in prison, he was apprehended uh, lurking around the perimeter gates of Buckingham Palace, at which point the authorities properly lost lost patience with him and said, right, you're going off to the, join the Navy. <laughs> that'll <laughs> so sort you out. That'll sort you out, young man. So they, they, they sent him away um, to be a sailor uh, and he was overseas serving on three different ships um, for many years. Um, and one of these ships then docked at Portsmouth and he managed to abscond and walk from Portsmouth back to London where he was apprehended on his way to Buckingham Palace. <laughs> <laughs> That's so brilliant. And he became something of a kind of um, folk hero. So he was widely reported in the press at the time and he was known as the Boy Jones. That's there we go. so good. He was, was complete, completely obsessed with <laughs> Buckingham Palace and Queen Victoria's underwear. Um, Simpler uh, times. They simpler were simpler times. times. Yeah. Um, you think there's a lot of other things you, you could have, like, pilfered from Buckingham Palace. Yeah, right? Like um, silver cutlery yeah. and all that sort of thing. Just, Although yeah. that would be noisier if he was disguised as a chimney sweep and he's walking down the corridor nonchalantly and all his pockets are jangling. Or a painting, because he could have just cut it out of the frame, rolled oh, it yeah. up. Yeah, like they do yeah. in kind of... Um, Tom Crown Affair, Tom's Crown Affair. Yeah. Yeah. They could have done that. But no, he yeah. wanted, that's not what he wanted. He wanted the... It was fetishist. It's, it obviously was. had a, yeah, had a thing for old Vicky. Yeah, definitely. Um, and that's, uh, so that's that. Is there any cycling news? Oh, I suppose we can come to that, can't we? But um, can I... Intru- well, i tell you what, there is the cycling news, is that you've got your hands on um, your hero's book. I, uh, I did. I, it's, I think it was published, actually, he, he, Guillaume Martin is the, the hero in question. Who finished, of course, eighth on the Tour de France this year and eleventh the year before that, and finished ninth at the Vuelta this year mm. in quite similar circumstances. Actually, mm. it's quite strange. So both his, both the Tour and the Vuelta, he kind of had lost time in the general classification, but then found himself in a move that stayed away and clawed a lot of time back and ended snatching up snatching a top ten from the jaws of a podium. Yeah, yeah, and ended up with the Vuelta. He was just second, wasn't he? Quite mm. close towards the end, and um, the Tour de France, he was second in the Pyrenees wasn't he or was he third I can't remember but then he lost lost a chunk of time in the time trial but he's had a really good year uh, racing for Cofidis Um, and an excellent year in that I think he says in the interview that this book was published on the 10th of November Hmm. which means it's only seven days ago and I've managed to get it um, delivered it's not been published in the UK it's only published in France Um, but it's been delivered to me already and yesterday I read I read it all in a day, which was kind of quite hard That's work impressive. because it's, it's French, it's a, it's French um, and it's f- philosophy. <laughs> so I, <laughs> which of course I'm famously, um, famously good at uh, decoding, David, as are you. <laughs> um, but he does write, he does write with real grace and real clarity and real, um, it's really interesting, his writing. I hope it's one got day. such a, a French philosophical literature cover as well, hasn't it? It's quite an academic-looking cover, isn't it? Yeah, it's uh, that's it's, that's exactly what you see in a lot of French bookshops of books with spines uh, and covers like that. It's like, hello, right? This is for smart people. This is pretty, yeah. you know. This is you can just see it in a window display in one of those um, little bookshops near the Sorbonne, can't you? Mm-hmm. You know, jostling alongside uh, heavy academic works. So, Guillaume Martin, La Société du Peloton, Philosophie. De l'individu dans le groupe. So it is. Um, it's a. It's a discussion. It's a meditation. It's a history, actually, as well. Um, partly of the the, the classic kind of uh, philosophical discourse about the individual and his or her place, their place within society and within various different groupings, and and how they come into conflict, how their ambitions um, can 
uh, cancel one another out or come into conflict, but also how they can be symbiotic. So is he um, using the peloton as a, a crucible for explaining society at large? Absolutely. And specifically the dynamics or, or the life of an individual within the peloton and how, mm. and how that works. And, you know, as far as sporting metaphors go, which can be a little bit clunky from time to time, this one stands up to scrutiny. Mm. You know, so every time he makes a, a wider point about, because he talks a lot about COVID, he talks about, he's obviously very passionate about climate emergency, and he talks about populism and uh, the crisis of democracy and Brexit and stuff. He brings it back very quickly to a concrete example from the peloton. Hmm. Um, you know, one of his kind of slightly more clear-cut and perhaps obvious points, um, but it's a very elegant point as well, is that, uh, you know, the dynamic within a breakaway where it flips from the moment, you know, where they ha- where they are collaborating Game to the moment theory. where it starts to, yeah, where, where it starts to fall apart because mm-hmm. they are now thinking about the victory and therefore yeah. all of them are going to lose mm-hmm. rather than one of them win. Um, that, he says has a strong parallel to our own individual attitudes towards climate change in society. Oh, you know, good. I'm, I know that we are not going to be able to avoid this, but I, I'm just hoping my neighbor turns the heating down because mm. I, I quite want the heating on actually, you know, so I'm the guy skipping turns at the back. Yeah. Um, but I'm also the guy who is setting an example that my neighbor is replicating. And they say, well, if he's going to put his heating on, I'm going to put my bloody heating on. And then we're all doomed. Yeah. Which is, I think it's a really, so that if you, if you think of that and then he, you know, he kind of examines, he examines um, these dynamics in all sorts of different ways and then draws back to his own sort of racing career and some really elegant stuff. But anyway, let's, this is about half an hour of this interview. Um, But it's the first time I've really heard Guillaume talk at length, you know, other than actually he, he does say in the book, he says, when I am interviewed at a bike race, when any of us are interviewed at a bike race, we just, resort back to a kind of very limited very limited linguistic palette of kind of bland Mm. platitudes and there are good reasons for that but Mm. this is Guillaume being expansive and elegant and thoughtful on all sorts of subjects Hello, Guillaume. Um, how are you? I'm okay. It's it's uh, off season, so it's not the hardest part of the of the year for, for a rider. So yeah, I'm enjoying uh, holidays, and soon uh, it will be time to start training again. Are you? Where are you? Because um, five minutes ago, I finished reading this fantastic book, which is what I want to talk to you about. And there's a there's a, a paragraph or two in this book where you talk about. Um, training on your own in the winter in Normandy are you in Normandy at the moment or is that where you live yeah where I live uh close to the to the to the coast to the sea uh so not so far uh from uh, the UK and (laughs) maybe if I look through the window maybe I can see and uh and I can see the weather also that is typical from uh, Normandy and also from England I think uh, it's uh, really cloudy and uh, really grey, humid also. Yeah. Okay. Because um, in your in your book, you 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 talk about um, training on your own and sometimes questioning um, why it is you do this uh, because it is such a hard profession. But you don't. But you don't question yourself for very long because very quickly, as you as you say, you remind yourself of the answer, and the answer is. Because you, as far as I understand, the answer is you want to feel like a, a, a complete human um, and uh, sort of bringing your body alive is part of that process because it's part of your consciousness. Is that, is that roughly right? Have I understood those, those thoughts? Uh, I think in our society, um, our brains uh, are um, working a lot, uh, maybe a bit too much, and our bodies are not used uh, enough uh, and they are used less and less compared to to the population uh, 100 years ago and even before. So I think that's a problem and maybe sport is an answer to that. When you are on the bike, uh, outside, okay, you're suffering, but also you are experiencing uh, your your body and 
yeah, you're uh, fully human because I truly believe that uh, human is maybe a body before to be a to be a, a spirit. I, I really think that the body is uh, is uh, the first uh, thing uh, compared to the to the spirit. So, um, uh, and that's what I experience uh, when I'm on the bike. Fantastic. The book is. Um... I would say the book is, uh, what surprised me about the book is how um, engaged you are with um, modernity, with the point in history which we find ourselves in right now. Fundamentally, Guillaume, though, the the book sets up this uh, very interesting um, contradiction or incoherence, which is a word which you use quite a lot, um, which exists both in uh, society, but it also exists in the peloton, which, which is the mirror of society. And that contradiction is between um, the individual and the group. Do you think that road racing in particular, more than any other sport that I can think of, is the essence of this contradiction? Because it is more obvious, it's more clear in road racing than it is in any other sport. Sure. I think you can uh, divide sports into... Two classes, uh, individual sports like uh, tennis, for example, and uh, and sports founded on the on the group like football or rugby. Uh, but when you think about cycling, uh, it's not easy to um, to put in uh, one of those classes. It's uh, it's both uh, individual and collective uh, sport, and that's. What makes it really interesting, uh, to my point point of view, um, because and also symbolic to uh, general society, because I think in general society, like in cycling, you always have to to think about yourself. Of course, you don't have to forget yourself, but you also have to think about uh, about the group. That's really true when you belong to a to a, a company um, and. You you work for the wealth of uh, the company, but your goal is also not only to uh, to to the prosperity of that company. It's also your salary at the end of the month. But it's not only your salary; it's both things. And when you think also about um, uh, the problem of global warming, uh, I think we should be able to to think uh, not only to um, our comfort, our everyday life, uh, but also to the future of uh, ourselves as a group. And we discover now more and more that it's not so easy to 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 think about uh, those two things at the same time. And um, very early in the book, you talk about the the metaphor of or the reality as well of riders in a breakaway. So, th- th- if you have a uh, if you have four or five riders in a breakaway from different teams, of course they have to work together. But then there comes the point in the race at which, for various reasons, they can no longer work together because if you if you work, you harm your own chances of winning the race, which ultimately is what it all becomes about. And this is where the the contradictions and the incoherence comes in. And you make a very interesting point that. That's where we're at with the climate emergency. I think you you say at one point in in the book, um, my house is burning, uh, but I'm waiting for the neighbour to come, my neighbour to come round and put my put the fire out in my house because I don't want to do anything about it. <laughs> I mean, it is it, it it's a very interesting comparison, isn't it? We are in a big uh, breakaway. <laughs> And uh, and sure, uh, you we discovered that uh, breakaways don't always uh, cooperate. Uh, they should. The rationality says that if you want to win when you are in a breakaway, then you have to to ride a block together in order to to arrive before the bunch. If the brand bunch uh, uh, catches you, then it's over for all the riders of the breakaway. And if the now I'm not t- talking about the bunch, but if the global warming warming catches us, then it's our our world is over, but also our lives 
as individuals. So we have to cooperate, but we also always think about our everyday life, our immediate comfort, and maybe we can do little tricks to, to be in front of our neighbor. And I think that's the main uh, problem. So um, that's, yeah, that's a real problem of, of the breakaway and also of, uh, of uh, our society um, against uh, global warming. You make the point very well that um, in this kind of division between the society or the group and the individual, it actually starts with the individual, doesn't it? Because it's all about the ego. Everything actually is about the ego at the beginning, but the ego can't operate in isolation. And that's where the relationships come in with other people. But there are very, very many complex different forms that these relationships um, take. And that really seems to fascinate you in this, in this book. Yeah. Um, that's, I, I wrote a, a book before, uh, called, in, it's also not tradu- translated in, uh, in English, uh, in French, it's, um, Socrates à vélo, Socrates on the bike. And that one was really more, um, um, general about philosophy and cycling, but this one is really personal. And I'm really uh, engaged in what I say, and because it um, was inspired uh, during the COVID, also during a period that uh, all of us, uh, uh, I think we we thought a lot uh, more than usually about uh, what's happening in our society, and um, and I, I don't remember what was your uh, question. No, it was a really, it was a really long, complicated question that didn't end in a question. <laughs> but I was saying that, um, but but so, so there are so many complexities about um, the way that the ego interacts with a group. Because there's a, there's a be- there's a beautiful example, Guillaume, that you give from um, I think it's the Junior World Championships in Copenhagen in 2011, where you were riding for France. And I forget the name of your Pierre Pierre Henri Le Cuisinier. There you go. He was he was the he, he was the winner. He won the world championships. Um, and I, I don't remember the race, but you describe it very well that you were working with him, and he had a faster sprint than you, Guillaume. So you sacrificed yourself for him, and he got the win. Yeah, I think that that day I could have done uh, maybe three or four. But I decided to ride fully for him. Uh, so I finished, I think, 84 and he won. Uh, but what I say in the book is that this behavior, when you think it, uh, about it uh, primarily, uh, it looks like uh, altruism. Uh, it, it's, it's not a matter of ego. And what I say, I am honest with myself and I say, no, also the ego is involved in that because when my uh, teammate wins, uh, that was the same last year in Imola with uh, Julien Alaphilippe, I also win a bit. So also my ego is uh, is um, flattered. Does it exist in English? Yeah, flattered. Perfect. Yeah. Um, so and uh, also when I, that that race uh, under nineteen was on on TV, and that year i thought already about becoming professional and i knew that some managers would look at this race so the ego was also the ego was also uh, involved because i wanted to to become professional so what i say is that uh one of the reflections i had during covid uh, we in our society we talk always about uh, about the group the team is more more important than the individuals and I think uh, that's uh, uh, a bit um, hypocrite. I, uh, a bit. Um, uh, it's, it's okay in English. Hypocrite or hypocritical. Yeah. Mm. Hypocritical. Uh, because um, no. First of all, we are individuals. We are human. I when I talk about you, uh, there is nobody with me. Uh, and when I come to life i'm also alone it doesn't mean that we are all alone because it's impossible we are uh 
every human being and every uh, life on earth can only exist through a group. So you have the two things. We are first egos, but we, all, we are also involved in uh, social uh, links. And that's uh, the combination of uh, those two things that uh, is really interesting and hard to, uh, to, uh, to, 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 to develop. Because the, the book is very honest. You're very honest about all these things which are not often expressed or not often said about, about racing. And in fact, one of the th- things that you say about that victory in Copenhagen was on the one hand, it wasn't altruistic and it did flatter your ego and it was useful for your career and an important moment. But on the other hand, there was a little bit of sadness as well that it wasn't you who won. Because that's also important to admit, isn't it? That's a part of the complexity of the picture. I, I think nothing is uh, is really is simple. Nothing is uh, either uh, black or white. It's always, as you said, uh, a matter of complexity, and you are always uh, influenced by um, also emotional uh, considerations. Uh, it's not only we are human beings, so we are not only we are rationals, but we are not only rational beings. We are also uh, uh, persons of emotions or or of in- instincts, and all this is uh, is a mix that is uh, yeah really hard to understand, but also really interesting to um, to study. And and I think in cycling, you really see, and in sport, you really see that that mix, because in a cycling race, you see um, rationality involved with uh, the tactic, but uh, also when you are on the race, what uh, what your sport director tells you in the in the year, sometimes you listen to it, but sometimes also it's a matter of instinct, and you you have to react uh, on the moment, so. Cycling is really an example of uh, that combination of uh, rationality and, uh, and uh, emotions. You also give some examples of when riders in history, and it does happen sometimes, do things um, that go against the team tactics, go against the etiquette, go against the ethics, and they ride for themselves. You know, we, we had we had that moment, didn't we, in the 2012 Tour de France with um, Froome, and Wiggins at La Toussuire, that was a famous example. And they stick out in the memory of in, in cycling more than the victories sometimes, because what they are, the riders are revealing in that moment is kind of pure humanity, isn't it? Where the rules of cooperation seem to fall away. And actually what you're left with is raw ego. And that, that, sense, that sense that the ego... Is, is just beneath the surface of the peloton and the peloton has only just got a kind of control over it, I think is, is very interesting about cycling. And sometimes it, the mask slips and we see, we, see, we see people for what they are. Sure, if we see the race only as a competition with uh, results and uh, winners, losers, okay, uh, that's good. Good to see. That's interesting. But after a moment, you, you understand... Uh, how it works and uh, you go to do something else or watch something else. What we really like to see, I think, is, um, is the drama. Is um, This is why cycling is so popular for more than 100 years now. It's because it's uh, uh, like a good, uh, good movie or good book. Uh, you really see humans uh, living day after day in a Grand Tour, for example, and you see all the passions involved in it, and you you see that it's not only a matter of what. Now we talk a lot about uh, cycling uh, with uh, what and with uh, scientific uh, perspectives, but I think something resists and will always resist. This is uh, the human, and this is what makes it interesting. It's uh, the drama that uh, is uh, over the, the results. Yeah, and, and sometimes... Sometimes some of the things that you observe are quite surprising. You make a very interesting point, I think, about how sometimes at the moment of victory 
for a leader, for a great champion, at the moment of victory, that is often a very difficult moment uh, because there is a, a kind of strange instant emptiness after after the victory because that was the point and the target and the focus of everything that they had done up until that point and then it stops so what comes next um and that, that that's we do see that from time to time don't we with um with riders that you know after the winning has finished life is quite difficult and it also uh, proves that the result is not the most important thing most important thing is is the path that uh, uh, drives you to the to the result. Um, I remember Cancellara a few years ago. I think when he was an uh, Olympic champion in TT, one month after he got into uh, mental uh, uh, depression or uh, he had really hard times uh, because he had no other goals to um, to achieve. And I think nowadays uh, we see more and more riders uh, that uh, also suffer from mental, uh, psychological um, problems. And uh, because yeah, results becomes too too important, and and I experienced the same. Uh, I was dreaming of some success. And the day I achieved it, I was quite disappointed. Okay, I won. That's good, but eventually that wasn't so so good. Uh, I think I, I enjoyed most the time before the preparation. And that's the same. I, I spoke a bit with uh, Primoz Roglic. And uh, you can really understand after the disappointments he had uh, in the tour. That was not uh, the problem because then he could uh, train again and target another goal. But what was really what really difficult for him is maybe to, to see new goals when he won everything. Fascinating. Fascinating. Um, I liked the point you made as well um, because I'd never thought about it like this. Um, you, you talk about quick step. Um, uh, at least I think it's quick step, the team that you we're talking about when you say sometimes the rational reason um, is not the one you think it is. Why do all the really strong riders come together in one team? It's not always about um, the numbers of victories that they can have just for themselves. It's not always about the salary that they can get. It's not always about that. Sometimes power attracts power. Um, and you make a very, I think you make a very interesting, very interesting points in society about um, the way which startup companies uh, in the modern world are all about um, the appearance of power at the beginning. It's not about making money. It's about looking big. And the bigger you look to everybody, the more you will convince the world of your status. And it's a little bit like that with with recruitment in the peloton. Sometimes that is. Have I understood that correctly? I've kind of maybe half understood your points, but I, I thought that was very interesting. No, I think you you understood quite well. And we are in a society of uh, of show of image, and that is true. That uh, image is more important than uh, the reality. Uh, so. Uh, position you take in the society is more more important also that than the the money you can get um if you think about the gaffas for example uh, i'm not sure all of them uh, earned a lot of money at the beginning but they uh, developed and uh, and grew up and grew up and yes yeah, suddenly a company like amazon they can control the world and do whatever they want. And I'm not sure that Amazon won a lot of money until uh, the last uh, years. Um, but they uh, accepted to, to lose money to become stronger and stronger. And uh, and in cycling, I guess it's uh, a, bit, uh, a bit the same. Uh, when you think about uh, stars, for example, or uh, big names in cycling, you think, Okay, they 
only think about the money, but that's not true. They want, first of all, to to win races or to to belong to the to the best, and that's why you go to the team where the best are already, and that's why all the best come together in the same team. Uh, I'm not sure in Quickstep uh, there are the big, uh, biggest uh, salaries, but they know that if they go to, to Quickstep, okay, they can win the races, but they are also in a mood that is really uh, good for for them in every part of uh, of the lives. I think they've also Guillaume, they've they've also been riders, great riders, very good riders with Sky and Ineos, who perhaps could have gone to another team and been the leader and don't get very many opportunities as leader in, in Sky or, or, or Ineos. But they're happy there because they're kind of attracted to, you know, it's flattering again to use that word when Sky or Ineos say, we want you. Even if it means, you know, you'll probably have to sacrifice yourself most of the time. You're with the big boys. You're kind of part of the alpha um, set within the peloton. And, and it's strange, the kind of the psychology of that. A, a, another really um, a, a point that interested me was you, you were talking about um, becoming a parent, the instinct that most of us, not all of us, most of us have to have children, to become a parent, to, to keep life sort of going, going forward. And nothing could be, on the one hand, nothing could be more selfless than having a child because you would always say, I would lay down my life for my child. But on the other hand, there is something selfish about having a child, which um, can you explain what you mean by that? Um, when I develop my theories about uh, the importance of the ego, uh, that's always an objection objection that I receive an answer. Uh, yeah, what about uh, parenthood? Because yeah, indeed, it 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 uh, looks like it's uh, really altruistic, but uh, but if I think about it, I'm not sure it's fully altruistic. Uh, because when you give birth, uh, you it's also a way to um, to it's in a way it's a search of uh, eternity. Uh, somebody of me will uh, be st- will still be living uh, after my death, uh, and so I will be there after. So this is egoistic and also uh, it's uh, uh, it's a way of giving uh, meaning in your life and so that meaning uh, is also it's also a consideration egoistic uh, because you don't do it for the child that will come you do it to give meaning to your life these are big subjects and they're quite, you know, they're, they're massively interesting. Um, and you, you take that point one step further when you talk about the Greek myth of Medea, who she, she kills her children. Um, and of course, that's her crime. Um, but you make the point, you make the point that in some ways you could see that as being an act of almost pure humanity, because it is the it's the pure expression of ego or the purest that you could imagine. It's also inhuman. But then you say, actually, she, she kills herself. And you say, and you could say that that is actually the, the most inhuman thing that you can do. Yeah, I, I'm a bit uh, provocative in that part. But, you know, our myths uh, work. They're, they're there to help us to to think and to uh to develop uh, theories uh and i use this uh myth to um to yeah to develop my theory of the ego and uh media is often seen as uh, somebody uh, uh crazy she kills her children uh therefore uh she's uh, crazy and i think no why did she kill her children? Uh, because her lover, uh, uh, Jason, uh, left her. So it's uh, really uh, focused on her, 
her life. When I, I say she's human when she kills her children, uh, I, <laughs> of course, I don't say she has the right to do that. Or No, that would be crazy. <laughs> now, listen, it's a, it's, a, it's a great book and it's just been published. Is that right, Guillaume? When did, when did it come out? Very recently? One week, one week ago, the 10th of uh, November in French, and, uh, and I hope it will be one day in, uh, in English. Yeah, that would be that would be fantastic. So, um, uh, j- just I suppose we could talk just just briefly about your cycling um, plans and goals for for next year, Guillaume. Because last year, um, with the two Grand Tours and your eighth place uh, at, the, at the Tour de France in particular, how do you reflect on last year? That was a huge goal of yours, wasn't it, to get in the top ten at the Tour de France, and then to go to the Vuelta and do similar things as well. Um, are you is that is that your best year to date? Uh, a lot of people uh, consider that that's my best year, and I'm not sure it is. Uh, if you see only the results in the Grand Tour, that's for sure. But it was a strange uh, year. Uh, it started for me with uh, really many problems: a knee injury during the all winter, a big crash at the beginning of the year. Then I was uh, scared in the downhill, so that wasn't uh, really easy. But then I could come back with a good uh, good level. And uh, and also uh, the tour. Uh, I started the tour with the, the goal of, um, of a, a stage victory. And I tried to go in uh, some breakaways. I lost uh, time at the beginning of the tour in GC. And suddenly after a few breakaways, I was back in the, in the game for, for the GC. So, of course, the last week I uh, I uh, did my best to, to get the best result possible in GC, but that wasn't the goal at the beginning. So that, that was a, a bit uh, a bit strange. And um, if I see the result, eight is really good. But if I see my level, I think I was even stronger uh, last year in the two when I finished uh, 11, but I was uh, third in GC for a long time at the beginning. And, and I never experienced uh, that really the same feelings on the back this year. I hope uh, I will uh, find it again, again uh, next next year. And uh, but what I'm also really proud of uh, this year is uh, the way that I could do two top tens in uh, Grand Tours in uh, in two months and a half. With um, I finished also nine in the Vuelta, uh, doing the Olympic Games at the middle. So uh, yeah, I. Did all those races consecutively, and I still could uh, evolve at, at a good uh, level. So that was a, a good point. But also the Vuelta was really strange because I was bad at the beginning, then good again, second in GC, and I crashed uh, quite uh, badly uh, at the beginning of the last week when I really had to uh, to struggle to keep that uh, top ten. So that was a strange, uh, strange year for me. Uh, but the, I love that. That's so interesting, isn't it? That in 2020. You were a full-on GC rider at the Tour de France. That was your ambition. And you very nearly got the top 10, 11th. And you were so close to the yellow jersey in the first week as well. But in 2021, you have a completely different plan. <laughs> and, you, and you end up getting into, into the top 10. But that says everything about cycling, about the conversation we were just having, about the, the complexities and the incoherence sometimes of cycling, doesn't it? That you can have this ambition and this tactic but it can produce a completely different result. Yeah, and and you discover that it's always a matter of uh, circumstances. You can have plans, you can have uh, protocols, you can have you can try to do it uh, uh, everything in a scientific way, but at the end, no, it's a sport. Uh, it's yeah, everything happens on the terrain, on the route. And uh, you never know what will happen. That is also what's interesting in cycling. It's like a, a play uh, in theater, but you don't know how it will end. Nothing is written. And yeah, it's really fascinating. It is. Guillaume, where, I mean, what would be your realistic ambition? Let's, let's, uh, let's think about the Tour de France in isolation as a race. What, what do you think is your... How far can you go in GC? What be, what's realistic for you? It's really hard to say. Uh, I I don't put limit uh, limits uh, to myself. 
um, but I'm also realistic. Uh, I'm I know that I'm not. Uh, I'm 28 now. Now and there are a lot of uh, young and really good uh, riders, but still I think that I every year I I progress or at least I do better results. So I think it's uh, when you are 28 you can also pro uh, progress mm -hmm. uh, coming years. Um, uh, if I have the legs of uh, yeah August after, last year after the COVID, uh, I can do really good because uh, I finished also third in uh, in the GC of uh, Dauphiné Libéré. Yep. That period and and at that moment I was uh, I the uh, Pogacar for example. Uh, not only with circumstances, but uh, really with my legs. Yep. And uh, I was really almost at the level of Roglic. And it means that I have it inside me and this is uh, possible. So I don't know. I will not tell you one result in particular, but uh, I know that I can still do better than what I did. And the general classification. I know you say last year, you weren't riding for the general classification, but the general classification is still a thing that you want for yourself. You want, you still are a GC rider at the tour, are you? Because I, it's the hardest for me. I cannot imagine the, the pressures and the difficulties of being a GC racer and you still embrace that. And that's what you want to do. Yeah. Last year I started thinking about the stage victory and, uh, and then the GC came and I realized that I'm, um, uh, my profile as a rider is uh, to target uh, GC. Okay, <laughs> if I can win a, a stage uh, next year, I uh, I will do it uh, for sure. Uh, but uh, my nature is to target uh, GC, and uh, and I think I will uh, keep doing that uh, in the future. And I think also uh, general classifications are the essential of uh, of cycling. That's the purest uh, thing in cycling because that's also the oddest. Maybe that's not the most uh, spectacular thing uh, or what makes you really popular. Uh, it's You're more popular if you win a, a stage at the Tour than if you do eight, for example. Uh, but uh, the sportive value of it is, uh, for me, to my point of view, uh, much bigger. Fantastic. Guillaume, I've taken half an hour, 40 minutes of your life um, that you will never get back. So uh, <laughs> thank you very much for your time. And um, you, ha you have a lot of fans in the UK who want to read that translated into English, um, that book, and who enjoy, enjoy greatly watching you race. So thanks for everything that you've done in the past. Thanks for writing another brilliant book. And um, I hope to speak to you soon. You. Thanks a lot. So there you go, David. Never meet your heroes, but I—I I, it was nice to meet that hero. He's, nice. I, I tell you what, he's, he is—he's um, unique, isn't he? We've never had anybody like him uh, who's a proper. He's not a pseudo intellect. I, no. I mean, I, I just dibble dabble and just like reading books and sharing the stuff I learn. Never studied something or been in anything where you're that deep in, where it's your absolute passion. And you've studied it and you continue to, to study it and share it. I mean, he's, a, he's an academic who's a cyclist. So the difference between Guillaume Martin and you and me, for example, yeah, is that if, if you imagine a library, Guillaume Martin is, gets into the, is the first person in the library in the morning and the last person to mm. leave. And he's, yeah. the guy, he's the guy who sits with a pile of books in the corner and does not move. And he's yeah. not distracted. He's, done, he's left his phone at home. He's making notes. You and me, you and me are just mincing around all the time, pick, <laughs> p 
picking up books like that, flicking through them, looking at the pictures, <laughs> popping them back, having a little natter, going for a cup of tea, pop that size for a cigarette, come back in, like That's that. totally us. That's like, we're, we're kind of, um, I love that we, we just mince around libraries, just, <laughs> just, just dipping in and out, dipping our toes, and occasionally finding something. And then, then that might go off for half an hour, 45 <laughs> minutes, but it won't be on the same book, it will link to other books. Whereas he's just been sitting there with that pile growing, and it's all from the <laughs> philosophy section. And it's yeah. just like, wow, that's amazing. That's great. No, yeah, but you're right. You're right. He's not pretending. He's not a pseudo-academic. No. He is, he's, he's a properly uh, intelligent, thoughtful, incredibly educated man. And, he's, and he happens to be a top 10 rider at the Tour de France. It's, um, it's, un- it's, pr- it's it pretty be, unprecedented. I tell you what, it must be really difficult thinking that much as a professional cyclist. Because obviously he still is. If he's written that book while a professional cyclist, that's yeah. a lot of deep thought. Which yeah. generally you're advised to avoid yeah. as a professional cyclist because, or an yeah. elite athlete, because it does, it uses up a lot of mental energy yeah. and yeah. it uses up a lot of resources to do that when you do need to just narrow down and tunnel vision. Oh, I know what I wanted to talk to you about now. Um, now you mentioned that, you know, you're advised not to think as a professional cyclist. You're also advised not to um, stand, walk, and quite specifically run. As a That's becoming cyclist. a thing now, isn't it? And they're all running. And it turns out they're all incredibly fast, David. What's well, that all so about? They're fast because they've got huge engines. I mean, I saw that Tom Dumoulin did his 32-minute 10K, which is, what, 260, well, obviously 216 minutes, but I think probably two short 16s because it was quite a short 32, which is fast. I mean, it's, it's good for a good amateur. But what's amazing about that, he's doing that solely on his cardiovascular engine yeah and and there's no he could probably go a minute and a half faster if he actually did all the training because it's a huge amount of stylistic kind of specific kind of body adaptation to be a good runner uh, just the way we all say professional cyclists you can see a professional cyclist if you're out on a ride because you can see their the the fluidity the how fluid their pedal stroke is and the same with runners when you see a pro runner they just look like they're floating along the ground Pro cyclists, when they run, they're fighting the ground, and yet they're still doing these good times simply because they're. But and this is also the the fault, and one of the things that happens with pro cyclists, they then think they can just get faster and faster. That oh, running's easy. To make that leap, they probably have to do a year, two, three years of absolute adaptation to get that running style to get the kind of to the efficiency to go faster because to be honest they're just cheating the running system at the moment because they're they're probably to be perfectly frank fitter than runners but they haven't got any of the the actual training the physiology to do it so but and i think the reason they're doing we've spoken about this before on podcasts is the the learning in recent years with all the the what's been going on with the increased due diligence regards pro cyclists, not only during, but the understanding of what happens afterwards, is when you do 10 plus years, 15 plus years being a, a cyclist and only riding your bike and sitting down, lying down, you are at great risk of osteoporosis, of your bones weakening. Yeah. And you can't fix that once it happens. Wow. Uh, yeah. So yeah. I don't think you have mentioned that before, actually, but that's really interesting. Mm. Yeah. So what they're advising young pros to do now is in their winter is to go and run to give the impact because the impact will then strengthen your body, the, then yeah. strengthens the bones. And it's just gives you that because that's often what happens. And it happened to me towards the end of my career. I started to break bones a little easier when actually mm. during my whole career, I was, I, I mean, I thought I was lucky, but I'd end up in a lot of crashes, but I didn't break. But then the last three or four years, I was breaking easily when I fell probably because my bones were weakening. And so it's that, that kind of thing where that's actually been, and that's great to see because if I'd run in my, in the first 10 years of my career in the off season, I'd have been reprimanded by my team for the risk of injury. Whereas actually now what we're doing is, is to what they're doing it for uh, is to prevent health issues, prevent long-term health issues from being a pro cyclist. Um, but that's, that's the only reason they're doing it. And it's quite fun to go and do it, I think, as well. So it's good to see. And it goes to show how much that culture of the peloton has changed, that there is a bit more long-term yeah. care being put into the athletes. Yeah, cool. All right, well, um, that's probably us for this week. So you're, you're coming to London, 
What's tomorrow what? morning, tomorrow, but I'm in tomorrow. London just tomorrow. And then you're heading up north. And then I'm heading up mm. north with the sister for yeah. five days. Okay, cool. Then back down on Tuesday, do the ride on Tuesday yeah. evening, then fly back here on Wednesday. Well, we should aim to do another pod face-to-face on Tuesday before the ride. That's perfect. We should definitely do that. Get yeah. get that done. Get the ride done. Yeah. And how do people sign up for this ride, David? Because we'll lots put the of link, our uh, listeners... Yeah, we'll put the link yeah. in the show notes uh, and they can okay. find it. Um, cool. Yeah, because they just go on and, and sign up. Chapter 3... Chain Gang Tuesday. There were quite a lot um, of people there last night, weren't there? I think it ended up being like 399 or something. That's which is quite, it's, quite, it's quite a big peloton. Yeah, it uh, is. It's, but we're, we're still learning and it's kind of, it's really interesting. I, mean, I spoke to you about this. It's just, it's, uh, it's not given the respect it deserves because there's actually a huge community in there. Um, yeah, let's get in there. It's, and you can actually talk to people, a lot of people at once, which is quite good fun. It is. Mm. All right, then. Okay. All right. Have a nice Hashtag. day. I am Ned. See, <laughs> see you next week. Cheers, David. Bye. 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 Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.